Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Diana Butler-Bass. Diana is an award-winning author, popular speaker, inspiring preacher, and one of America's most trusted commentators on religion and contemporary spirituality. She's also the author of the recently released book, Freeing Jesus, Rediscovering Jesus as Friend, Teacher, Savior, Lord, Way, and Presence. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Geology. Geology is an indie rock project from Philadelphia. You can get connected with Diana and Geology in their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, I have Diana Butler-Bass with me. And Diana Butler-Bass, you are not only an author, but you're like one of the kind of authors who has been so important in my life for so long. I, I've told you this story before, but uh, you know it's worth telling again. But I remember probably six years ago reading Grounded for the very first time and it really changing my faith in a way where I'm like wanting to move from evangelicalism and then moving into a space that really seemed to be the place where I knew was true. And so to be able to chat with you and to be able to um, even develop a friendship with you over these last several years has just been great, uh, considering the fact that you really changed my life about six or so years ago. So it's great to be chatting with you. But with all of that said, who is Diana Butler Bass to Diana Butler Bass? Oh my gosh, you're asking me to introduce myself. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, when I think about what I do, I in some ways, I don't really think of myself as being all that exceptional. Um, I sometimes joke that I was born in the middle part of the 20th century in Maryland, which is the most middling of states, in a middle-class <laughs> family, in a Methodist church, which is the most middle sort of denomination right. you can possibly have. And so I think that I I understand myself to have lived in the middle of a whole lot of currents that have changed the world that we live in over i just turned 62 so um um, i can hardly believe that but over six decades now so i that's kind of how i i think of myself and um you know uh, just kind of a regular person and this regular person wound up having this very interesting vocation of writing about those currents and sharing my experiences of them and helping people process the way that we're navigating the shifts that have attended all of our lives. So that's how I really think of myself. I also think, you know, I think of myself as a Christian, as a person who's on a journey, as Mm -hmm. a mom, those things too. Mm -hmm. But it's really interesting to have someone ask me that question. (laughs) You've always been at the forefront of thinking about what is going to happen in the church, what's already happening in the church and where will it be leading. But now you didn't just take it to the church, but you're thinking about that with Christ himself. Uh, And so you wrote a wonderful book recently and will be coming out. Well, as soon as this episode will come out, it actually will be out for a day. But you wrote a book called Freeing Jesus, Rediscovering Jesus as Friend, Teacher, Savior, Lord, Way, and Presence. That's a mouthful. But anyway, so you're, you know, you're kind of stepping away for just a moment, a little bit about the church and now kind of taking your eyes and setting it a little bit on Jesus himself. So, you know, you know, lots of things about theology. You have a PhD and you've taught theology and you've written theology books. So, you know, a thing or two, but what's something that you learned about Jesus when you were writing this book that you didn't know about Jesus before? It's interesting that you would frame it the way that you did. And I probably framed it wrong. (laughs) No, you didn't frame it wrong at all. My work since uh, writing Grounded, I had literally tried to turn it not away from the church in the sense that 
you know, I'm not mad at the church per, mm-hmm. per se or at, or anything like that or telling people, oh, no, don't join churches. But what I was trying to do with Grounded, which came out in 2015, was to broaden my sort of theological lens and help people understand that when we speak of God, you know, we used to do that in a language that was distinctly churchy Mm -hmm. and very distinctly sort of theological. And so that meant there were certain kinds of authorities you had to draw on. There were certain kinds of, in effect, approvals that, you you know, benchmarks of approval that you had to reach. And you did it for the life of the church. And indeed, I know that you know this argument really well. There are people who say that you can't write theology unless you're writing it for and within the context of the church. And I've thought to myself in more recent years since Grounded that if we maintain that posture, uh, there's just going to be a lot less theology written Mm -hmm. (laughs) because there are fewer people in churches and the, the whole idea of what church means and the practice of church going has shifted just enormously. So with Grounded, I really decided that I was going to sort of walk into a new arena. So instead of just writing for the church, I was going to write for the church and the world. Specifically the ground. <laughs> yeah, specifically the ground. It's a very much an eco-theology, as you know. It's, right. It talks about nature and neighbor and all those things. So, um, so I wasn't dissing the church, but I was saying, hey, let's think of the present, where God dwells as being much broader than within just these boundaries. Mm-hmm. So so that was uh grounded then with grateful I was considering what kinds of spiritual practices can we carry with us into the world again that aren't necessarily distinctly christian that have some interesting christian interpretations around them but are also practices a practice that you can relate to people who are Jews and Muslims and Buddhists and secular um, uh, humanists. And so I I wanted to write about that kind of spiritual practice. So I wound up writing a book, Gratitude. And now this book, I think, continues that journey. Mm -hmm. And there are so many things that sort of were behind me taking up uh, writing about Jesus. One of them actually happened on the Grounded book tour so many years ago. I was on a radio show on Sirius XM in New York. And uh, the host of that particular show used to be Roman Catholic, but no longer, she still understands herself to be Roman Catholic, but she doesn't go to church and she Mm -hmm. has two little kids. And literally in the middle of the grounded interview, she, she stopped and she said to me, she said, well, I understand all these stories and I love Jesus and I would love my kids to know about Jesus too. But I'm just not going to ever take them into a church again. So, and then she said to me, well, how do I tell them these stories? And I I think that was where this book was born all, mm-hmm. all that time ago, you know, sitting in a studio uh, in, in Manhattan, literally being quizzed by a pretty famous radio interviewer about her sadness that she felt like she couldn't be part of a church anymore, but still wanted to know Jesus. And so that, that kind of question haunted me. And um, I wanted to explore what it would look like to write about Jesus, basically write a Christology that was in the world and not just a Christology of big fancy terminology that you'd have to go to seminary to understand. Mm -hmm. And so that's, so I think that this book is really part of that trajectory mm-hmm. of me wanting to uh, speak faith into the world so that more people can hear these kinds of questions and that they can recognize that God does still work in and through their experience. You've written a lot of words in lots of different books, and I'm sure there's been a lot of learning about yourself in the writing of all of these different words in all of these different books. What did you learn about yourself, though, specifically in writing Freeing Jesus? Well, it's funny because you asked me a minute ago what I learned about Jesus, and I deflected. <laughs> so it's totally fine. It was a great answer. Very interesting. Well, I, defle- I deflected into sort of where it came from. Well, 
I learned something about both Jesus and myself uh, while, while writing this book. And it's very much caught up into the title that is freeing Jesus. What I basically learned is that when we free Jesus, we free ourselves. Mm. And I don't think that this that line is actually in the book, but that's what the narrative arc of the book is. And I when I went back and reread it fairly recently for one of the edits, I surprised myself by seeing how many times I would sort of arrive at one place in my life and I thought I had an answer. And um, that answer might last for eh, a couple years. And by the time I kind of got to the next place, I felt like Jesus, I had accidentally put Jesus in a cage. I, I thought that I was encountering God, you know, God and Jesus. But really what I was mostly encountering was somebody's idea about who Jesus was. And then I had to keep taking Jesus out of these cages. And um, what I found along the way is that every time I put Jesus in a cage, I was also putting myself in one. Mm -hmm. And so the more I freed up Jesus to be uh, this really compelling and confounding figure and not think I had all the answers, the more I was freeing up myself. Mm -hmm. and, and so the two, for Christians, I think, Jesus and who we are are actually a lot more closely uh, interwoven, I think, than we sometimes imagine. You shared a little bit ago about this host that was grew up Roman Catholic and but still was really compelled and interested in Jesus so much so that she wanted to share it with her mm -hmm. children. So in the beginning of the, in the beginning of the book you talk a little bit about how many many people now are leaving Christianity yet they still love Jesus. Why do you think that is? Isn't it just the strangest thing? I know that you hear that all the t that language all the time is that you know people say oh I don't want to be seen as a Christian anymore. Don't call me a Christian. Mm -hmm. Oh, I left church a long time ago. And then they'll kind of add something like, but you know, I really, I really still like Jesus or I want to follow Jesus. So you have that set of people. And um, now that one out of every four American adults doesn't belong to a religious group. And a lot of those people were once Christians or whose parents were Christians or grandparents certainly were. That's a lot of people. And, and I think there's a kind of a corresponding question uh, within the ch within churches themselves. Uh, now here, I'm not talking about evangelical churches, but mm -hmm. I'm, I'm more talking about liberal Protestant churches and even some Catholic churches. I, I certainly have Catholic friends who have this trouble. And that is, they know that Jesus is the center of things but they have no idea how to talk about Jesus. Mm. And they feel like Jesus is somehow exclusive or embarrassing or that they can't bring up Jesus name with their Muslim or Buddhist or Jewish friends without feeling like people are going to throw things at them or that they're being rude. And so, so on one hand, there are people who say, okay, I'm not a Christian anymore, but I still like Jesus. On the other hand, there are people who are Christians who are saying, but I, I, I like Jesus personally, but I really don't want anybody to know about it. Mm. And so, so there's this sort of double-edged problem about talking about Jesus in public conversation and with your friends. In the book, you also kind of explore not necessarily like the Jesus of, a, of history, like the historical Jesus people did, or, or the Christ of faith, which is also, you know, some theological concept that gets um, talked a little bit about. You kind of talk a little bit more about Jesus of experience. I'm curious, like how you differentiate Jesus of experience from those other two. The classic, th that idea of there's the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. That was an idea that was written about around 100, 120 years ago by a German scholar. And ever since that idea was first presented, uh, the scholarship around Jesus really divided up into two camps. And so the Jesus of history is really an academic quest to move away all the accretions of tradition and all the sort of sort of false interpretations of who Jesus is and just get back to the historical person who 
walked around 2000 years ago in Israel and who for some crazy reason we still actually remember. I I actually think that that's one of the weirdest things about writing about Jesus is that I'm talking about someone who lived and died 2000 years ago and yet we're talking about him like he's just a normal guy mm-hmm. who lives down the street from us. Right. <laughs> you know. Not too many it's other a- people in history can make that claim about themselves that they're still talked about in that way 2000 years later. Yeah, I don't even think I and I have so much regard for my Muslim and my Jewish friends, but I never really hear them talk about Muhammad and Moses in that same sense mm. of familiarity that Christians is sort of, oh yeah, Jesus, you know. So so that's the Jesus of history, trying to figure out who that guy was uh, t- who lived 2000 years ago and why the heck, you know, he still has any influence or what have you today. And then the Christ of Faith project is really it's actually about understanding that historical person wrapped through the lens of the church's traditions. And so the Christ of faith becomes the Jesus who is human and divine, the Jesus who is part of a trinity, uh, the Jesus who was resurrected bodily from the dead, the Jesus who sits in heaven at the right hand of God. And so the Christ of faith is really that figure, that towering sort of theological person who we can only know in fullness through these sort of doctrines that have developed over the years and how we embrace those doctrines if we submit to them, if we let those doctrines guide the way we understand who Jesus is. And so what has happened, of course, it's pretty obvious, is that the the Jesus scholars of history and the sort of theologians of the tradition, you know, have been like this. And, and it's been especially annoying and dominant and also i think unhelpful fight Mm -hmm. over the last 30 years so i decided that i just sort of wanted to walk right past that fight Mm. and instead of taking sides most people know that my natural inclination is more to sort of take the side of the jesus of history people that's where most Mm -hmm. of my friends do their work and I, I, I've learned a lot from them and I value that, but I decided to try to move the argument to a different place. Mm. And so instead I wanted to talk about, well, how do I, how do I really know that guy who lived 2000 years ago? Is it because I spent time studying ancient Greek and Roman history and, you know, know the languages or have been sitting on the Jesus seminar, or is it because I recite these creeds? Is that how I really know Jesus? And I went, no, 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 that's not how I know Jesus at all. I know Jesus because I've kind of always known Jesus. Mm. And that as a, as a person who grew up in the middle part of the 20th century in a Methodist, very middling kind of denomination, you know, Jesus was I can't remember when I even first heard Jesus's name. Mm. And so this name and this person in some way has attended my entire life. And so I thought really the way that I know Jesus is through my experience. And so, so I, in this book, open that up beyond just sort of telling a nice memoir I mean, uh, there's there were several alternative titles that were thrown around for this book. One was Jesus Girl, and uh, but it's it's not really just that. It's not really just about my experience. It it winds up being a an invitation to anybody who would read the book to consider how our lives are a text in which God shows up, mm. and for Christians, God showing up has to do with Jesus. You also talked a little bit ago about how it felt like Jesus has been kind of caged in these different ways. One of the ways that I've experienced Jesus sort of being caged up, if you will, is Jesus being only in the cage of uh, his death, Jesus as atonement. And then there's also the Jesus as uh, the, the Christmas story and that narrative, and it's just his birth. And for at least the tradition I grew up in and evangelicalism, those were the only two things that really mattered about Jesus. And you kind of ignored the other almost 33 years of this guy's life, which just those two bookends, his death and his birth. 
And he really gets caged up, if you will, in, in, those, in those two narratives. But you talk a little bit about your book about Jesus as teacher and Jesus as way. How do you think talking about Jesus as teacher and Jesus as way uncages and frees Jesus for the other major narrative of his life, the other 33 years? I, I remember Mason, I'm, you probably got this same Christmas card. I remember when you're going to my mailbox, opening up a Christmas card and it was from an f- old friend of mine that I went to church with back in high school. We were students together in high school and uh, her Christmas card was Merry Christmas. Jesus was born so he could die for your sins, you know, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> this picture of uh, Oh, and one part of a little baby Jesus in the in the cradle. And then the next one was like, it's bloody Jesus hanging <laughs> off the cross. And so that's your narrative right there. And man, that's pretty bad. If any of us are ever just, he, she was born and then she died. Okay. <laughs> that's just not a very interesting story, to be honest. It's really not the most interesting of stories. Of course, there's all kinds of really interesting stuff that is gets wrapped around it with Jesus, but there's all the, the other. And so in certain ways, I think that Jesus as teacher chapter was my favorite one to write. Mm. This relates to the fact that, and this makes some distinction between uh, your growing up experience and my growing up experience, because I was born in the middle part of the 20th century. What was still really strong in the middle part of the 20th century were these liberal mainline churches. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up in a tradition where if you would have probably asked anybody in my church, uh, what is the dominant way you think about Jesus? How do you think about Jesus? They would have all said he was a great moral teacher. Mm And so I literally grew up in an environment for the first, you know, decade, 12 years of my life where that was what mattered, what Jesus taught. And so Sunday school was about that and sermons were about that. And since I was growing up, I was born in 59. So I was growing up through the civil rights movement and Vietnam and the women's movement. Those are all sort of my first ever some political memories. But, you know, people talked about these things, you know, they would talk about, well, what would Jesus say, you know, to the Vietnam War? People have really conflicted ideas of what Jesus would teach about the civil rights movement. You know, mm-hmm. there were clearly people in my church who thought, like my mother, who thought it was very bad that Black people were treated so unfairly. And her solution, um, which I think was a solution of a lot of nice white Protestants in the middle part of the 20th century, was that you had to be, you know, kinder. Mm-hmm. You know, you had to, you had to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, that was my mom's answer for everything. But that was what Jesus taught. And so as Jesus taught that, that's what we had to do. And if we did those things, then, of course, it wasn't like that got us to heaven because we made a sort of a distinction between ourselves and Catholics on that score. But it would mean that when we got to heaven, Jesus would like us better. Mm. And so everybody wanted to please Jesus. And that whole vision of Christianity got sort of lost, I think, in the onslaught of the growth of evangelicalism in the late 20th century. Mm-hmm. As evangelicalism became more prominent and more powerful, uh, literally, they ridiculed that idea as, of Jesus as teacher and said, oh, you can't, you can't hold on to that idea. If you hold on to that idea, you're going to, you're going to go to hell. That's mm-hmm. not what it means to be a Christian. And so it's pretty, you know, it's a pretty sensitive young teenager. And when someone first said that to me, quoting C.S. Lewis um, out of about the Lord, liar, lunatic, you so you can never believe Jesus as a great moral teacher because he was either a lord, liar, or lunatic. He could, you can't have moral teacher as one of your choices. And so it was like, wait a second, that's my Methodist church, my Methodist church said that was the only choice. And so so I that chapter struggles with what it really means to call Jesus teacher. And and I love I just love where that took me. It took me back to some wonderful mm. places in my own spiritual life. Mm-hmm. 
so so that's the teacher chapter and then to talk about jesus as the way that chapter is a little bit more mystical perhaps mm -hmm. because you know jesus refers to jesus own self as the way and so what i'm trying to do in that that chapter is unpack what that means and so i talk about a way of love and i talk about um getting on the wrong way and how we have to sometimes readjust the way that we're on in order to really discover ourselves with Jesus and what happens when the way seems to collapse into darkness. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so I take a lot of that imagery of journey and road and path and play with, play with it. Mm -hmm. And uh, in a sense, uh, I think that that chapter, chapter five is the most harrowing chapter in the mm -hmm. book because it really opens with me being in a place I never imagined myself being. And my thirties in particular were a time when I had to figure out how to get out of that dark corner mm -hmm. in which I had put myself. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it wasn't easy. So, so those are the two images, the teacher, and then this idea of the way, you know, a guide, a friend, the actual path itself. Mm -hmm. uh, those are all kinds of conclusions I come to. And, and that chapter ends, of course, with a, not surprisingly for my friends, uh, with a scene uh, which I'm on a labyrinth in a monastery in Santa Barbara, California, reflecting on uh, what the way means theologically. Towards the end of the book, you talk about Jesus as being presence. And I know yeah. at the very least, you're process theology adjacent. So without getting too nerdy about process theology, how does process theology shape your understanding of Jesus as presence? Well, I, I, I guess I am process theology adjacent, partly because I... I have never liked theology that gets all stuck into technical terminology. Right. And so people always will say th things to me like, oh, you're kind of like uh, you're into theopoetics or you're a process theologian or you're a panentheist. It's like all of that is true. But if you have me sit down and take a test about what any of those things meant, I'd fail. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I'm cool with that. You know, I'm well past needing to take tests to prove anything to anybody. But um what it does mean for me is that uh, that Jesus is somehow it becomes the embodiment of God's creative direction of compassion for the universe. And in that Jesus serves as exemplar, as model, as pathbreaker, as the 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 one who sort of pulls us into the deepest most creative life we can possibly have in and with god and that somehow we uh, the, and the christian message is very distinctly about that is that somehow we as christians can't get into that fullness except that jesus opens that path for us now, it doesn't mean that that when I use that word accept, it doesn't mean that it, everybody else is excluded from the path. It means like, you know, there would be no way except God has made a way, you know, so it's it's that kind of vision of except. I couldn't get out of the house except that somebody opened the door. So I think that my most powerful process inclinations actually do show up in this book that Jesus is this ever creative presence that is at the heart of our spiritual lives is at the heart of the cosmos and that as we are moving more deeply and fully into that we are then enacting the the dream of god the the fullness of god so that's where i become pretty process uh, to the point where friends of mine who teach process theology say you know you really should teach process theology <laughs> Like, I can't pass the test on process theology, though. <laughs> but I can't. I don't know all the terminology. And so uh, what, one of the things that really kind of uh, tickled me is we're, we're doing this interview a couple weeks before the book comes out. And I have been sending out these little previews of the book. And in that chapter on presence, I have a section uh, where I talk about 
a rock formation at Ghost Ranch in New Mexico and how I was praying there. I was in something called the Zen Garden. And all of a sudden the rocks on these giant cliffs that I was standing not very far away from uh, started crashing down to the earth, like uh, as if they were literally being hurled by gods. And um, so the, the whole piece is a reflection on what does it mean to say that Christ is the rock of our salvation if the rocks are falling mm-hmm. off of the top of the cliff and you know changing the nature of the world so i wrote that piece and it got sent out in my newsletter and literally within about 3 hours of it having been sent out i got a an email from an older friend of mine who is a retired minister in Colorado. And for years, he and I have been arguing about reformed kind of neo neo orthodoxy versus my sort of pantheist theopoetic process, mm-hmm. Paul Tillich kinds of inclinations, Deschardins mm-hmm. inclinations. And so, so literally the, I opened up my email from my friend Jim and it says, dang you process theologians. <laughs> That's all he read. He read read five paragraphs from my book. And that was his response. Dang, you process theologians. And I I literally wrote back to him. I said, I guess that was a success. (laughs) (laughs) That's how you know. That's a mark of a good friendship, by the way. (laughs) It is a a good one. And one of the, my passions, you were asking me at the very beginning what my passions were, how I understand myself is that my job is to put words in the world so that people actually understand things. And so with Grounded, with Grateful, and now with this book, I have purposefully put these theologies that are often a lot more obscure and arcane and that regular church people, you said to them, process theology, they'd look at you like, what? Or if you say panentheism, they say, you're a pantheist, you know what? And so- what I've been trying to do is put lang- very beautiful, accessible, understandable language around these, these visions, these theological visions that I think hold an incredible moment of truth for the world in which we live now. Here upon our bed I lie, eyes upon the darkened sky. Slowly losing sight, erase the parts we didn't like, take it apart piece by piece. So, in addition to all these other types of ways to think about Jesus that you talk about in the book, the one that I was probably most curious about was Jesus as romantic. And I know that many mystics, especially women mystics, and especially during the medieval times, experienced Jesus in really romantic ways, or at least they described their experiences with Jesus in really romantic ways. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by Jesus as romantic? It really is attached to the idea of Jesus as lover. And as you say, I mean, it's just, that's what the tradition is. Women, especially women in the Middle Ages um, and um, women in the sort of deep devotional traditions that even stretch into the Enlightenment, understood Jesus as being their sort of ultimate romantic partner. And uh, in the Middle Ages, there's lots of material written by nuns that, uh, and and now we're talking N-U-N-S, not N-O-N-E-S. So written by nuns who, it's almost sexual in nature. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they draw a lot of that from the Song of Solomon. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of seeing Jesus as the 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 bridegroom, and they're the the bride, and so so it's a it's a long sort of history of interpretation and devotional practice in Christianity. I write about it some, obviously, in that last chapter. The presence chapter in the book is the most the most feminist, and it is also the most embedded in or or undergirded by process theology and mm-hmm. also by panentheism, the God, the idea that God is with and through and within us. And so 
no surprise that it would it would show up it would show up there and i do then mention it again at the end of the book that in recent years that had that that was a really powerful image for me but i also didn't write about it quite as much i think as it influenced um, my actual life because mm-hmm. it felt very private and very personal and i know that i was writing a me- what i call memoir theology but at the same time I think that there are, and this is just, I'm kind of old fashioned about this. There are ways that I am sometimes very spare uh, with my experience uh, because it's, it's really a deep part of me and not every piece of who I am needs to go out into the world. You know, it's, there are places we can draw back and hold our, even even when I'm writing about an experiential theology, there are places we probably can and should hold back to reflect on more deeply and to hold in a kind of beauty that the public doesn't necessarily need to be able to comment on. One of the things that I'm also really curious about is how you sort of think through this all-inclusive universal Christ, if you will, how how does this all-inclusive universal Christ meet particular people in their particular traditions? Well, it's funny you would use the word universal Christ because in the sort of the exit part of the book, I the last chapter is called the universal Jesus. Right. And I specifically stayed away oh. from Christ language. You'll notice, I mean, if you go back and you look mm-hmm. at the book, it really mm-hmm. is a book about Jesus. And and I I don't think I use the word Christ a dozen times in this book, which I can't wait to see how certain people will attack me on Twitter for that. Um, <laughs> I, I'm looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. And so what I, I, I think that my answer is in the title itself is if you're talking about a universal Christ, the Christ concept becomes so, so big. And so in in a sense, I've always found the the use of the term Christ really depersonalizing. Mm. Um, And even back in evangelicalism, they depersonalize. I spent some years in that tradition, but they depersonalize the word Christ by saying, you know, Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. So it's not a name, but it's a title. And as soon as you put a title on a name, then you've sort of elevated that person uh, beyond what they were, you know, Charles, Prince of Wales. Mm. You know, he's no longer just Charlie at the pub, but he's the Prince of Wales. And um, I think that we do that with the title Christ. So when I insisted on calling Jesus, Jesus throughout this book, what I was trying to do is maintain that fundamental humanity and relationality of mm-hmm, Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so that's the place where I think that every person has the possibility of connecting with Jesus. And, and to use another sort of evangelical idea, when I was a teenager, first went to an evangelical church after growing up Methodist. Uh, boy, my Methodist friends are going to hate hearing that sentence, but too bad. Um, and uh, so I, for, when I first went to a you know, sort of even American evangelical kind of Bible church, they would always talk about having a relationship with Jesus. And, you know, that's the one place where I think they're right. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I literally, for all of my frustration with evangelicalism, for all the ways I've critiqued it over the years, that is the one piece that I've held on to and that I think is really important is that somehow when we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about Jesus, a human being who lived 2000 years ago. And somehow by the fact that millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people have talked about that Jesus through 2000 years that Jesus has become alive in a manner that we two millennia separate can still have a friendship, a relational life with. And so, so that becomes the doorway, I think, for understanding the universality of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Somehow, 
we're all capable of being somehow in a relationship with Jesus. It, it's a bit of a mystery. I mean, mm-hmm. that's really, that really is, I talk a lot about mystery in the book, uh, but that really is a kind of a mystical interpretation of who Jesus is, but it is also a mystery to how that happens. Mm-hmm. And, and then of course, because we're all different, um, that Jesus then comes to us through a myriad of different traditions. Right. Right. And um, I, I love that diversity and I'm grateful for all of the different kinds of stories and uh, practices and rituals that the whole wide range of Christian churches have put around that Jesus uh, to help us try to understand how that relationship is initiated, how it can be ritualized and regularized into practices of sacraments and prayers and all those good things. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I think that religion is, and tradition still remains very important in that sense. While, and this is why I'm not really all completely on board with just the Jesus of history project, because it really does try to strip Jesus away from those things. I think all of that stuff of tradition, of, of even creeds and sacraments, those are what I would call windows into understanding how we encounter the fullness of this person, Jesus. So because you care about this personal relationship with Jesus. Yeah, don't I sound like Beth Moore now? You really do, which I don't (laughs) think is bad at all. I don't either. (laughs) I like it, actually. So because you have this personal relationship with Jesus, what would you ask Jesus right now? Or what have you been asking Jesus is maybe a different way to ask that. Oh my gosh, you know what I've been asking Jesus for for this entire year is freedom. Mm. <laughs> freedom and healing. Uh, you know, here we are and we've been through the pandemic and literally everybody in my life, they're basically all asking for the same things. <laughs> they're asking that we would be healed, that we would not be, you know, fall into this, you know, this to this disease which has had brutal effects on, and and we know, we know people who have been terribly impacted. And I certainly have had a couple of friends of friends or, or uh, relatives of friends who have, who have died, you know, so we we see, we want to be healed and we want to be free. We want to, we just want to be free. We don't want to be in our houses Mm -hmm. anymore. And when you get right down to it, those are two of the most important promises of the New Testament <laughs> are for salvus, the healing, the wholeness of God, that God will make us whole. And that somehow this encounter, this relationship with Jesus, that's what it's about. It's about the healing of our souls. It's about the healing of the world. And then it is about liberation. Mm-hmm. It is about being set free from anything that would restrain us from love, from cre- full creativity, from being the people that we're called to be. Mm-hmm. So those are the two things I've been praying for. So, salvation, wholeness, healing, and freedom. And um, yay, God. <laughs> you know, that those are those are the very things that Jesus came to offer. And so, so the, the question then is, you know, how does that manifest itself in the world? Does that mean you run it, run down the street, uh, not wearing a mask and just coughing in your neighbor's face? Well, of course it doesn't because part of the freedom that Christ taught was that we love our neighbors as ourselves and that we do unto others as we would have done to, to us. And so in that, in liberation and, and freedom that our, our personal exodus is always in conversation with the love of neighbor Mm. and how then we contribute to a world where neighborly love is the primary ethic. So that's, um, you know, we're having an argument about what the shape of freedom is, I think. And then also what is the shape of, of salvus? What is the shape of healing? You know, we're getting to a point. I just got vaccinated this last week. By the time this comes out, I should be actually. Hey. Have my se- yeah, I should actually have my second shot by the time the book comes out. So we're we're on the verge of having some level of physical healing 
uh, from the pandemic between vaccinations and also treatments. I was listening to Dr. Fauci the other day and can kind of geek out on him. I think he's very cool. <laughs> he reminds me of some very cool 80 year olds I know. Um, and so um, he was talking about therapeutics and he was saying, you know, we're not really, we haven't been really going on about therapeutics, but we're at a point now with certain drugs that if you get to the doctor early enough after you've had a COVID diagnosis and you take these, these drugs, you're not going to wind up in the hospital and you will not wind up dead. You will wind up with a rather mild case. So between the vaccine and drugs, and um, I think sort of some of the ways we've learned to live, or many of us have lived, we have been on a path toward physical healing. And that's just going to continue over the next few months. But then I wonder, you know, where have we been broken through all this? And there's so many wounds. So physical healing is only the first step of my prayer. Mm -hmm. From all of this, but thinking about where the wounded Jesus he was a deeply Jesus was a, was deeply human and mm -hmm. he suffered and he was wounded and he died. And so think about where the wounded Jesus comes up against the wounds that we have suffered in this pandemic and where healing can grow mm -hmm. in in that that really honest engagement between a wounded God and a wounded humanity. Well, on that cheery note, last question, oh. Diana, <laughs> how can listeners get connected to you and your work? Oh my gosh. Well, there's uh, way too many ways people can get a hold of me. <laughs> the, uh, the primary ones are following me on Twitter. I, you know, I pay attention and I, do try to read comments. I don't always see every comment, but I do see probably more stuff um, and comment on more things than a lot of other authors do who have kind of a high level um, of followers that I do. So, so people can find me over there and what I'm thinking about on a sort of a daily and hopefully not hourly basis. <laughs> Um, and then the other really good way to connect with me is I have a newsletter called The Cottage, which is platformed on Substack, which is becoming a much more well-known platform, but people can subscribe to that. And I have to this point through the pandemic kept it for free. I might be doing a paid and a free version, but so in the near future, but that has not happened yet. So people can sign up for free and I send out usually two issues a week, one that is a little bit more warmer and more devotionally focused. And one that is uh, sometimes a little edgy with a political cultural focus of some issue that I really care about. So I'd say Follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter, The Cottage on Substack. And you can sign up for my newsletter over at my website, which is dianabutlerbass.com. And how should people get the new book? Oh, at any place that uh, you buy books. And so if you like those big online capitalist booksellers, you can get them there. Uh, but um, I always, always, always urge people to order books from your small, local and independent bookstores. You're lucky if you've got a great one in your town, Tattered Cover in Denver, Pals in, in Portland, Politics and Prose in Washington, D.C. And don't forget Christian booksellers. There are some great ones like Hearts and Minds in Dallas. Town, Pennsylvania. And so, uh, so anyway, those are some of my favorites. There are lots of good ones. Order books from your friends to keep them in business. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Diana. You know, we've been always, you know, talking about these different ways of Jesus being in the world. And, but Diana, you are a friend a mentor, a teacher, and so many other things to me. Uh, I, you know, maybe I'll have to write a book about, you know, Diana as all these different things uh, someday. Mason, it has been a joy to get to know you in the last six years, because I think I was one of your first podcast guests. You were one of the first. You were. And I remember, oh my gosh, this poor guy, he is on a journey. <laughs> and your questions were just like on fire. And I loved them. And then I, we met in person not long after that uh, at Wild Goose Festival. And so I think that the in-person piece kind of cemented the fact that we had done that podcast together. And 
I just, I have so much admiration for you and it's, it's uh, been a pleasure to see you go through seminary and also to turn into a, a Twitter theological controversialist of the first rank. <laughs> yes, what I pray for sometimes, sometimes I pray for you. <laughs> I could use all the prayers. I really could. Well, thank you so much for sharing a little bit more about the book, Diana. Again, it's one of my favorite Christological works out there. You know, you're you're on uh, you're on par with Trip Fuller. Oh my! Yeah, you you two are kind of at, uh, at bat right now, seeing who's who's going to take my favorite Christological work. But uh, you're you're batting pretty well right now. Trip loves the big words, and Diana loves poetry. That's right. So- Somehow we fit together. I think we make a nice pair. Being one of those people that like and appreciates both of those, I mean, that's why both of them are uh, really, really great. So anyway, thank you so much for sharing a little bit more about the book. And thank you so much for being a friend and a teacher and a mentor and so much more. Thank you for having me back on. And I just uh, am very grateful that you like the book. It means a lot to me. If you would like to connect with Diana and geology and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.